You're listening to Smart Businesses Do This, where I am joined by some very good friends of mine. I've got Matthew Meehan and Luigi, who are business partners that specialize in mergers and acquisitions. You are listening to Smart Businesses Do This, the podcast show for freelancers, side hustlers, and upcoming small business owners who want to transform their current business or business idea into a company that is built to succeed, simple to run, and gives you the freedom to live your life on your own terms. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. Hello, guys. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Adam. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lyons. I got to tell you, I chose the wrong podcast host. I needed someone with a English accent. You just, you just give it a certain gravitas. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, this is actually the natural accent of everybody from my small town in Texas. The, uh, <laughs> the English never left. That's why I'm always wearing, wearing red. They never left. We just stayed here. <laughs> Settled. And, uh, and everyone here speaks like me. So um, I would love to know, just at the very beginning, maybe you could uh, you know, just explain to the listeners um, who you are and what you do. Lou, I'll let you take this one. Go for it. Adam, very simple, buddy. We are a small business consultancy firm. We have a very humble mantra. We try to offer the services and programs to small businesses that are usually only withheld to larger businesses. Okay. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they take the form of loans, other times tax credits, um, M&A strategies, uh, scaling strategies. So these are the type of things that businesses have access to once they have in-house general counsel, in-house CFO, but the small to medium-sized business owner doesn't have access to that. So they contact Shield Advisory Group. Makes sense. I love that. And so basically what you're doing is you're giving people the ability to gain access to things that are normally only available for enterprise level businesses and above at the, the small business level. Yep, 100%. exactly. 100% correct. You know, me and Luigi both, we, we've run several businesses. I, I spent 17 years on Wall Street, right? So access to credit and capital are some things that business owners are usually a little bit naive about, right? Because they get into a business because they love what they're doing. They're usually following their passions, but then they start wearing all the hats of uh, entrepreneur. And sometimes they get lost and some of them wind up actually hating their business, right? And they forget the reason they started because they don't want to do everything else. They want to do what they do best. So what we did was when I owned my investment bank, we had teams and we had a framework inside of that investment bank where we had different departments. And unfortunately, a lot of small business owners don't have that framework or different departments they can access to. So they come to us and we put them in touch with other experts and we guide them along the way on their journey. So they can have the same resources that larger corporations have. Do I, I absolutely love that. Now, here's a question. Why would a small business even want to have access to that finance? Like surely, it, isn't it not better to just uh, you know raise money themselves, make sales? And obviously I'm being devil's advocate here. No, Adam, that's a great question. You know, you know what the, the solution is? It's very simple. Is any business that is successful, that is showing a profit, can increase sales and can scale. Bootstrapping, however, it takes time. What capital does, and the right capital, allows you to accelerate that growth. So it's the difference between a 45-degree um, angle versus a hockey stick growth. So that's why our approach is not so much, we're trade agnostic. We will deal with any business, B2B, B2C, 
white collar, blue collar, what have you. But we're personality specific because the principal must be an expert at his craft. I don't care if he's drilling wells or offering tax advice, but he must be a master at his craft and he must have resilience. The entrepreneur must have a thick skin because inevitably you don't know how you're going to get to that goal, but you're not going to stop until you achieve it. Totally makes sense. I love that. So, um, you know, so what's like, uh, you know, how long have you guys been doing this? What's like your, your current plan? What are you guys currently working on? Is this, is this it? You're just there lending money to businesses that need it? Or is there like a, a deeper mission behind this? So basically I left, I left wall street in 2015. I was on wall street for 17 years. I got fed up. I didn't want to work 12, 14, 16 hours a day. When we bought, we bought our first business, right? It was a brokerage firm, but I started prior to that working for other people. And what, what I wound up happening was resenting the business that I was in. Okay. So when I left Wall Street, I wanted, I wanted more time. I wanted to spend time with my family and my kids. And I think essentially that's why everybody gets into business, right? They want to spend more time. It's, the money's great, but it's more about the freedom and what you're able to do. And I think people get lost in the shuffle at that time. So when I left Wall Street, I got into the money lending space. We run a fund that lends money to small businesses throughout the country from Maine to California. Um, and it was great. It's great if you're an investor. It's great for me. But what I found out, found out realizing was the fact that these businesses need more than just a check. They were only treating a symptom and not the overall disease to get better. So that's yeah. when me and Luigi partnered up. It must have been right after COVID. Um, so what was it, 2020, the end of 2020? Yeah, right in the midst of COVID, we, we saw an opportunity. And, and Adam, you know, our deeper mission, like you asked earlier, we have the same mission. In any industry, when there's a low barrier to entry, oftentimes the lowest common denominator enters. And like you, we're trying to elevate the discourse in small business. Makes sense. Okay. So here's a question then that's something that I, I'm curious about. Obviously, you guys like, you know, really kicked it up during uh, 2020 with COVID. With everything going on in the financial market where we are now, how do you see that impacting uh, your business or, or what you're doing, you know, what, what do you think we're looking at in the future as small businesses? Fortunately for us, I think our business is going to thrive, right? We've grown 100x in the last two years. Let's put it that way. You know, we're doing eight figures in revenue right now. Um, I think more than anything, small business owners and entrepreneurs are going to need more guidance. A lot of people that started their business five years ago when things are good yeah. have never been punched in the face before, and they're not going to know how to handle the downturns, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, me and Luigi, we have decades of experience combined together, right? Where we've seen this. We've been through the ups and downs and the roller coaster rides, and make no doubt about it, the storm is coming. It may already be here, but it might just be drizzling, but it's going to get very heavy soon. And one of our businesses is where we, inside a shield advisor group, we have a fund, right? Where we lend money to small business owners. One thing the banks never do is lend you money when you need the money, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we take creative solutions and creative approaches where we'll invest in your company, consult for your company, right? Or lend you money directly from our balance sheet if we feel you're an operator that has resilience and can weather that storm. 
So our business, I think, is going to expand even more rapidly than it has. So I, I love this. And here's what I'm always telling people. When it comes to the upcoming you know, financial turmoil we're looking at, whatever it may be or whether it's here or not, when the economy's good, anybody can have a successful business. It was like when you saw uh, you know, cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, when they were doing their thing and becoming bigger, it was like every Uber driver was an expert in crypto. <laughs> My plumber was giving crypto advice, you know? And then the minute it all fell apart, they went, you know what, crypto is crazy, I'm back to plumbing. Like, you know, I, I like being an Uber driver. And it's the same thing. When the economy struggles, the only people that survive are the true business owners. And that's what I love about somebody who is a resilient archetype or somebody who does have a good business plan and a good head on their shoulders. Because what happens is when that storm comes and takes out a lot of the competition, those that know how to weather the storm are the ones that are going to ride straight through and end up getting that hockey stick of success. You know, we've got Amazon that grew out of the 2008 crisis. We've got Kellogg's that came out of the depression. Almost every single financial crisis in the history of the world has actually given birth to a company that has skyrocketed because they were prime uh, primed for success during that time. You're 100% right. We used to have a saying on Wall Street, and this was back in the dot-com days. Listen, when you're taking stock advice from a cop or a fireman about getting in on an IPO, you know the party's over. So <laughs> you're 100% right. And listen, we travel in the same circles and we see online, you see these guys, if they were hopping around. They were a mortgage broker. They were a crypto expert, NFT expert, and they couldn't make money when the economy was good. These guys are not going to be around when the economy is bad. However, even when the economy goes a lot lower, and I think it's going to go a lot lower, right? There's going to be tremendous opportunity for those that are resilient and can access the capital to double their business or their market share overnight. Right. Like, um, if, if you think about it, like the economy isn't actually bad yet. We haven't even dropped down to some of the lows that we've seen over the last, you know, 15, 20 years or what have you, which we are well capable of getting down to. The reality is it's just not good. And when you're in a situation, when you're in a situation where people are seeing something that is no longer amazing as being terrible, it's like, all right, it isn't amazing, but it's not bad wait till it gets bad because bad is terrible. And, you know, I'm always telling people as soon as it gets bad and those people you're talking about, the ones that uh, don't know how to run a business, they start falling apart and dropping by their customers suddenly become available to you. And while you may not get a hundred percent of that market share, and you may already have some of that market share, you gain additional customers to you. So it's like you actually gain a, a turbo boost, you know, to use a video game analogy. Every time Adam, let me give you, you let me give you a perfect analogy. I, I imagine you follow a football club back at home, right? Uh, you know, I'm a might be a bit of a Hammers fan, so I'm gonna say up the Hammers. Okay. okay, so you're a Hammers fan. You're not a fair weather Hammers fan. If the Hammers lose 10 games in a row, you're still a Hammers fan. Okay? Absolutely. And same thing with being a business owner. Business owner. A small business entrepreneur is a life choice. You don't enter an industry at the top of the market and then exit at the bottom of the market. You're an entrepreneur and you're, you're in it for the long haul. Matt and I have gone through together 9-11, the dot-com crisis before that, the mortgage banking crisis after that, several terrorist attacks after that, and Hurricane Sandy, all sorts of acts of God, 
And we don't say, well, now I'm going to become a mortgage banker or maybe sell penny stocks or maybe sell NFTs. Hey, you take it on the chin and you keep fighting. Absolutely. And that's that's the reality. Like, um, you know, I always think about uh, HVAC, right? I live in Texas and I'm like, I don't care how bad the economy gets. You still need to fix your AC. No one is going to go without air conditioning. Like one way or the other, people are going to find that money and they're going to get that AC fixed because it's Texas and you can't live without it. So the businesses are going to keep going, but it's going to be necessary businesses. I, I, I think of this like, and this is so controversial, I don't care. I think of it like education. Like there are some degrees you have to have. And then there are some degrees that it's like, really, you really want that? Like <laughs> I get having a degree to become a lawyer. Like I want my lawyer to have gone to school. Ideally, they're a professor of law. That's who I want, right? Or my doctor. I don't want to hear that my doctor, you know, who's a surgeon and he's about to do an open heart surgery on me, did a two-day boot camp with a six-week follow-up in a group coaching that he found online, right? I want my doctor to have actually gone to school and learned how to be a doctor. But when someone's done a degree in, you know, a theoretical art and the explanation of that art through dance form and, um, you know, some kind of expressive clothing, that's probably not going to be a, a fulfilling career financially, maybe emotionally. Maybe that's the reason they did it. But, you know, you're not going to leave and be like, hey, um, if anybody needs me to help them interpret, uh, you know, their, their emotions through dance and clothing, um, that there's not going to be that much of a demand in a down economy. Now, in an up economy, you're probably getting paid more than anyone else because everyone that's got loads of money to spend is like, oh, I always wanted to spend money on understanding my emotions through dance and clothing in a, a live art sculpture in my living room. But, but when the economy changes, people get very practical. And I think, it, to, to your point, those people that are real business owners understand that real business is driven by demand not their own desire. It's not what they're putting out into the world. It's what the world is demanding and they are answering that call. There are also macro trends at play here, mm -hmm. right? The American dream has changed over the last four to five decades. Years ago, you would go to college, like you said, and you tried to achieve the 2.7 cars, 2.2 children, and the house with the white picket fence in the suburbs. That was the American dream, okay? Maybe you ask a 17 or 18-year-old in the 70s or 80s what he wanted to be for, for, you know, when he grew up, he'd probably say, I don't know, I want to work at IBM or maybe be an engineer at GE, okay? That American dream is over. Today, the young person today wants to be an entrepreneur, wants to be a gig worker, wants to be an influencer, right? So those socioeconomic macro trends inevitably are going to affect the way we learn. Yeah, I mean, I have five children. All five of them want to grow up to be YouTubers. Like, literally, five kids. I have five kids at home, and every single one of them. I'm like, what do you want to be? When Adam, you this is a perfect example why corporal punishment should be allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, it's crazy because, like, you know, my, my five children, they say to me every day, like, each one of them independently, hey, dad, when I get older, I want to be a YouTuber. Dad, can I be a YouTuber? And I know that there are courses at universities for people to become YouTubers, but 
you're not you're very unlikely to get a job as a YouTuber. A YouTuber career is really an entrepreneurial career. And as someone who has helped some of the largest YouTube channels in the world, I helped Six Pack Shortcuts when they first started. Actually, I helped um, Discovery Digital, which was the Discovery Channel's uh, foray into YouTube, originally called TestTube. I helped them launch that. So I've done some really big brands on YouTube and worked with them. And in every single situation, even the ones like the Discovery Channel that had a huge budget, they were 100% concerned about how are they going to get that money back? And it was all, how will I make money back from the eyeballs? What am I going to do for it? Is it going to be ad revenue or am I going to need to develop some kind of product or merchandise, which ultimately comes down to that exact same thing, which is the business of entrepreneurship. And what I'm seeing is the companies that have monetized their business, especially the social media ones with building t-shirts and baseball caps that's all well and good in a good economy. But when the economy tanks and people are like, you know what, I don't need that expensive $50 t-shirt that supports my favorite YouTuber. I'm just gonna get you know, a pack of five black t-shirts and then I'm gonna be a bit smarter with my money. On the other hand, that YouTuber that is teaching you how to repair your own crack in a, in a windscreen and then selling you a $15 kit so you don't have to spend 200 bucks to get the whole thing replaced, that's the kind of person that is still going to be thriving, in, in my opinion. So, you know, it's funny that you say that. First of all, I have a question for you. Do, do your kids have a YouTube channel? Because my daughter asks me every day for a channel, but I think she just <laughs> wants to be famous and she doesn't care about the business aspect of it. Yeah. So, um, so of my five children, they, there is one streaming channel between all five of them. So it's actually, um, it's my middle child that wanted the most because he's the one that's obsessed with video games and they all wanted a video game YouTube channel, but the other kids are obsessed with watching YouTube. But my middle child, he's five. He's obsessed with playing video games and he doesn't watch YouTube. He just plays. So we decided to reward the child that was putting in the effort versus the ones that were passive voyeurs of YouTube. So the five-year-old was given all the equipment to have a live streaming studio in his room. He can only go live if either myself or my fiance are there with him. And all the other kids are allowed to play games and go live as well. So uh, his channel is Poopy Duck or The Poopy Duck, I think it is, because that's his favorite phrase is The Poopy Duck. I, he invented it. I don't know where it came from. Does daddy so make special guest appearances? <laughs> right, yeah, it's apparently. And... Uh, <laughs> What's, what's really cool about it is, um, you know, he does it when he feels like it, you know, but if he's ever like going on a marathon sprint of just playing video games, then we just, you know, put it on and live stream it and, and we as parents moderate it. And it's mostly just family members that watch it. I mean, we're not really trying to grow it, but we're making sure that as parents, we're rewarding the child that puts in the work as opposed to the ones that are watching other people put in the work. And that, that's it. a conscious choice for us. I love that. And I think what most people don't understand is just being on YouTube is not going to make you a lot of money. You have to have the business acumen behind it. And one person that did this amazingly, me and Luigi, let, let me just pre we, we we invested in a company just recently, an angel investment in a company out of Southern California, where they put together these virtual kitchens, right? So essentially, if you have a big enough audience, right, the eyeballs are there. How do we monetize those eyeballs at the end of the day? Well, if you have an audience, they put together a virtual kitchen for you which means basically an Uber Eats menu and your the food's being made somewhere else, your hands off and they're getting cut of that. You have to realize how to monetize different streams of revenue. And that's where you're the actual expert in, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I do. Okay. I mean, that's for whatever reason I've got, uh, I've got a gift of identifying what an audience wants to buy. 
and then positioning it in a way that they want to buy it, um, which which is, uh, I believe, an entrepreneurial superpower because it means no matter what, as long as I've got people willing to listen to what I have to say and I listen enough to what they're saying to know what they want, money can always be found. And you even know how much to charge. Like um, something I've seen that you guys might find interesting Um uh, I, I used to, you know, about a year ago, go and do the, the speaking circuit, go to all these entrepreneurial events. And I would say to people, what business do you have? And they would always say, I have a high ticket offer, as if that was the name of their business, like high ticket offer. I'm like, I don't even know what you do. You sell something that's expensive. <laughs> that's that's your business. You you sell expensive things. You want to hear and, something uh, crazy? I, di- I didn't know what a high ticket offer was probably until two years ago when I found this online space. I was on Wall Street. I mean, I guess everything I did was a high ticket offer, right? <laughs> <laughs> An actual high ticket offer, not like yeah. what these guys are doing. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's crazy, but like, that's how they define their business. And so, you know, a year ago, all my speeches were the importance of not calling your business a high ticket offer, like actually describe what your business is. But now all the companies I know that were doing high ticket offers are struggling. They can't make sales because, and it isn't because the economy's collapsed, which is what they're saying. It's just because people are worried about collapse. So they're being smarter with their money. They're not going to pay for a high ticket offer when often that advice is available on YouTube for free. So, you know, they're having to get smarter about how they do it. But the people that did not describe what they offered as a high ticket offer and actually solved a problem are having no problem with sales because they're not just selling something expensive. (laughs) I think there's going to be a huge demand in well, high ticket. What do you classify a high ticket offer as? Is there, is there a dollar value? Is there a general aspect in this online world? <laughs> so, so there's a there's a history behind this. There was a, a gentleman that he had a program that taught people turn your expertise into a high ticket offer, and he would sell a fifteen thousand dollar course, and he encouraged people to also sell a fifteen thousand dollar course. But the catch was, if you negotiated, you could get it down to nine or even five with a promise of making payments afterwards. So, so he had all these different financial methods. And uh, that was the, the guy that pushed it. And then after him, there were copycats. And then because the phrase high ticket offer became a thing, people were like, I'm working on my high ticket offer. They eventually would say, I finished my high ticket offer. And then you say, what do you do for a living? And they go, I have a high ticket offer. Because they never actually thought about what the benefit is. So I think nowadays, most people consider $3,000 or higher a high ticket offer. Um, although originally it was 15,000. And again, the, the benefit of being in this space for 17 years is I often know the progression of who invented the phrase and where it came from and what, what it's doing now. So I have a feeling right now people are concerned, right? They're seeing the news, doom and gloom everywhere. If you're working in corporate America, you're worried if you're getting laid off or quiet fired and you're the first one to go and you don't know when that's coming, right? However, I do think there will be a tipping point and the turning point in time when these people do get laid off, like we've seen in COVID, because job security is not there anymore, where those high ticket offers, offers, and if you really really have something to teach somebody, you can really help somebody get into entrepreneurship or start their own business with the knowledge that they have is going to make that hockey stick model that we were talking about. Yeah, I I agree. And I think like, It's just worth noting what businesses tend to do well during a recession, because there are some businesses that just thrive. And what's funny is those people don't like talking about it because they're succeeding when everyone else is struggling. 
but you just have to think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the lower something is on the need list or the higher demand it is, I suppose, the lower in the pyramid, but the more important it is, the more likely it is for people to want to get it. So for example, in a situation where um, nobody has any money, um, anything about making money, which is going to give security, tends to do quite well. So biz op does really, really well. Uh, anything where you're helping me make money or your guys' industry, which is why you know you do really, really well in those situations, because you're like, no one's giving you money. We will give you money, right? So that's a, a great situation. But also in those lower levels, you have connection, love. Uh, you know, relationships. So dating tends to do really, really well. Um, I remember, uh, you know, uh, if we think about like World War II, uh, the movie industry did really, really well during that period of time, because it was a cheap form of entertainment. So they could go spend a little bit of money and get a few hours and make an entire night of it. And so we developed the movie culture um, at the same time as obviously movies were progressing. Adam, there's a there's a there's an analyst on Wall Street that came up with this theory a couple of years ago, calling the uh, the lipstick economy. And the theory being is when lipstick sales increase, it's a sign of an oncoming recession or downturn because women will stop paying for the fancy hairstyle or maybe the high heel shoes or the Birkin handbag, but they still want to look nice. And the lipstick is accessible to everyone. I, I love that. And I 100% stand by it. I think there, there's a number of those like little social indicators that uh, things are happening. So like, for example, um, strip clubs will often see a massive decline in attendance just before any kind of financial uh, downturn. That's because the brokers and those on Wall Street that are usually right you know, in the middle of it are the first to know. On behalf of my partner, Matthew, he pleads the fifth in case of uh, incrimination. <laughs> so, so during, during the, the financial crisis in 2008, there were literally, we worked on Wall Street. We were in the Trump building. Luigi was on the floor underneath me and the bars were having a tough time bringing people in. So you would get two for one drinks at these top Bobby vans, these top top-notch places you couldn't even get into before. If the Dow turned red, closed red, you got two-for-one drinks. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if it was an up day, oh, it's only, you get half price, half price drinks for an hour. So that's yeah. the way they got them in. But I mean, this goes back to marketing and advertising since the Great Recession. How did you get people into bars back then? You gave them salami. Why did you give them the salami? Because it's salty because and it makes them want to drink. Salt, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the, it's so funny you said it because it really is like marketing and sales drives almost everything. Um, in fun fact, in 2008, when the whole financial crash happened, I was two years into running my, one of my businesses and it was in the dating industry. I didn't notice the recession at all. Because dating had a boon between 2008 and 2012, because everyone that didn't want to spend money on paying for dates, wanted to know they were loved, whether they had money or not. So they moved to going to dating programs. They wanted to actually be good at dating. They didn't want to pay their way. They wanted to be known. If I have no money, she'll still love me, right? You know, and that was a thing. So, <laughs> so when did that end? So that, that was like the time Tinder came out, right? Yeah. <laughs> and people were just swiping away. So you evolved. <laughs> so yeah, so, so what happened is as the economy picked up, um, and actually, it, it's fascinating because obviously I, I still own my dating company. And we, you know, yeah. we do seven figures a year in dating passively. We don't really touch it. But what's fascinating is we still you know, keep a pulse. We know what's going on, even though I'm not really working in it because I hear my employees talk about it. And um, in the dating industry, as the money got better, 
the generic dating advice changed. Instead of it being about find out whether they really like you, know what they really think, it shifted to work out a lot, make sure you have a nice car and women will naturally want you. So it shifted into a financial play. And um, a lot of the like so-called famous dating coaches now are famous for saying, just work out, get good money, make, you know, make good cash and everyone's going to love you. So they've moved into what we saw, funny enough, um, in the early 90s and the early 2000s, either side of the recessions. So it's like the dating has this weird wave that if the money is good, then you don't need to be good at dating. You just need to be successful. And if money is bad, you need to really be able to read someone's psychology to know what they really think. And that's uh, and that's the change. So yeah, th- there are these other indicators that let you know what's going on. And it's one of the reasons that I know that we're not in a real recession yet because the dating industry hasn't grown yet. It's still exactly where it was like a year ago, two years ago. There's, there's like little waves, like it's kind of harder to get people to pay the premium right now, but they're still coming in, there's no boost. But I know what happens, you start having a lot of volume that won't buy the highest things. And that volume hasn't picked up. So we've seen the drop on the higher things, but the volume isn't there yet. And that volume, when it rises, that's when you know. Jens, help me understand this, but if we extract the difficulty of the stock market over the last three weeks, what indicators are there that we're suffering recession? Unemployment is very low. Right. Businesses, earnings are steady. Right. So absent that emotional reaction to the Fed, who is a one trick pony that can only raise or lower rates. Where's the indicator that we're entering a recession? Right. So they have this exactly that that government metric that they analyze to see if there's a recession. Right. But I agree with you. I don't believe we're yet in a recession. I think what we're seeing is a decrease in momentum, which is not the same. If if I've got a car and I'm driving it. Right. If I've got a car and I'm driving at 80 miles an hour all the time and then I slow my car down by like 10 miles. I'm down at 70 miles an hour. It feels like I'm plodding along because I was going 80. I'm now going 70. Alternatively, if I'm driving 40 miles an hour and I suddenly increase up to 70, it feels so much faster. It's the same car. It's still 70 miles an hour. But the, the way I experience the speed is relative to what I was doing just before. We have just been in an accelerated economy where making money was ridiculously easy, too easy. And now we've dipped back down to still above average. It's it's not even average. It's above average, but it feels less because it was easier before. Yeah. Using using that terminology, though, but what the Fed is actually doing is they're sticking in front of your freeway. They're dropping a toll bridge in the road with one guy in there and slowing everybody down. I don't think that needs to be the case at all. Right. That is exactly what's happening. But that's because the Fed are worried about what's going to happen and they're trying to ease it back. Like the pro- my- I mean, Adam, honestly, my opinion, I don't want to get too political on here with you, though. No, get it. Get it. Bro, they should have did this a year ago. They're way too <laughs> late to the party because they're looking at data that is lagging indicators that don't even make sense. They're making decisions based upon PPI numbers, unemployment numbers that are three weeks behind. Hoping so somebody's going to fill I'll it tell out you what's going, I'll tell you what's going on here. I'll give you a good analogy. I have a buddy of mine. He's a Delta Force operative. He's an active 
in Delta Force, badass. He's probably the most scary human being I've ever met in my life, right? He was one of my clients. He's been a client for like 12 years. And so we're really good friends. He can beat me at everything except knife fighting. And I've always said to him, I was like, don't you guys study knife fighting? He's like, yeah, but you were a professional fencer. He's like, you competed internationally. It's not the same. He's like, whereas I learned how to shoot a gun, sniper rifle, you know, rescue hostages, swim, all these things. He's like, you can't do any of that. He's like, but you spent all that time learning how to fight with a bladed weapon. He's like, you have decades of experience beyond me. So yes, I can't beat you with this one thing. It's fine. I have a gun. I'm going to shoot you. But my, my point to that is what we see with the economy is you've got gentlemen like yourselves who fully understand the financial market because that's what you've spent a lifetime developing a career in how to do. The, the government that is making the decision is people who have spent a lifetime building a career of getting voted into various positions. Oh, so they're incredibly good at convincing people they know what they're doing and taking in a little bit of advice from people. But no matter, because, you know, people always say, oh, they're getting advice from experts. I don't care how much advice you give my buddy who's a Delta Force operative about knife fighting. If the fight is a knife fight between me and him, I win. No matter how many advisors he has and no matter how they're good they are, because when it comes down to the actual decision making in the heat of the moment under stress, he's not going to make the right decision. And I don't even have to think. I can half the time fight with my eyes closed because it's a reaction and it's a correct reaction built over time and tested in actual tournament level. Imagine you fencing or getting into a knife fight with a person that read four books on fencing. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is what we're dealing with with the Fed. I think we should take the board of governors, bring them. (laughs) Bring them to a grocery store and let them shop and maybe do some laundry and do some <laughs> folding of linens. And I think you'll be kind saying you believe they've read four books on the subject. It's completely <laughs> honest with you. I think I, I don't know many people that have read four books on a very specific subject unless they love that subject. Like, and, and you know, I think. I think I really like physics and I've only read two books on physics, you know, like, and I enjoy it. It's a fun subject, but I didn't go to school to study it. It's not my profession and I haven't got to the four books yet. And if I was a career politician, I've probably spent more books, more time reading books on politics. More importantly, Adam, you're not running the CERN laboratory in Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And if they ask me, I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm, have enough uh, morality to say, no, I do not want to be in charge of, of running the CERN laboratory um, unless you pay me a lot and vote me in. No, no, not at all. That's not gonna <laughs> so, no, so I love this, guys. I love, I, I love your guys' energy. So, like, um, you know, in your, in your dream scenario, if somebody's listening to this, what would they take away from it that would, you know, that would benefit you and benefit them? What, what are you guys looking for from, from a listener here? Listen, I think smart businesses, right? When things get tough, they don't cut marketing spend. Yeah. They don't cut marketing spend, right? That's the first thing to go. It's the easiest thing to go. But if you can't bring new people through the door, guess what? You're, you're killing yourself. Yep. And the bang for your buck goes up with marketing spend when everyone else isn't spending, right? It, in an economy when everyone else is reducing their marketing spend, your marketing spend goes that much further. So it's worth spending. 
Um, yeah, I, I have a buddy of mine. He turned, actually, it's the Delta Force guy. You'll love this. And he turned up to come and visit me one day out of the blue because that's what he does. He never knows when he's going to take time off or he does and just doesn't tell me. I don't know. And uh, we were going to do a 5K race. And so he turns up to the 5K race and he says to me, um, he's like, hey, so um, you didn't tell me there's a race. And he's wearing like shoes, not running shoes, shoes, like black leather shoes. And so he, he's got a tie on. And he takes his tie, turns it into a bandana. And I was like, hey, me and my team, you know, we're doing this for charity. We're just going to like stay together as a group. Do you want to run with us? He's like, no, I'm going to win. I'm like, look, I hate to break it to you, but it's muddy ground. Uh, you know, there's hills on this terrain because it's like a, 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 an outside park. I'm like, why don't you just hang out with us? Yeah, we can talk while we run. I'm probably going to take some breaks, you know? And he's like, no, I'm just going to win. And so sure enough, this 5K race in Austin, Texas, he goes and he wins not just by a little bit, like he destroys everyone. And there are these like three 20 something year old guys that are stretching and look like they run all day, every day. And he finishes like 20 seconds before the next person. So at the end of it, I say to him, how did you win? Like, what did you do? And he goes, it's very simple. He's like, I figured if I just run as fast as the guy at the front, I'm at least going to get around the track as fast as he is. But then when the hill goes up, He's going to slow down because it's hard to run uphill. I'm going to speed up. And then when it goes downhill, he's going to be scared. He's going to fall. I'm going to speed up because it's easier. And so he, he, he leaned into the struggle. And what I love about what you're saying is with the current economy and everything that we're doing, when the struggle happens, you got to lean in. Push harder, spend more, grind harder. And then when the economy is good, that's when you take your foot off the pedals and enjoy the ride and just enjoy it with everybody else. And then the minute it gets hard again, put that foot down and go. Dude, you guys have been incredible. If people want to get in contact with you and get your help, what should they do? Just you guys can follow us. We run our own podcast called The Liquid Lunch Project. It's www.theliquidlunchproject.com or it's at Matthew R. Meehan or at Luigi Rosa Bianca on Instagram. Dude, go check these guys out. They're incredible. Uh, Matthew's a personal friend of mine. Luigi's a personal friend of mine. Make sure you go check them out. These guys are great. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. And I just want to take a moment to say to you listeners, thank you so much for taking the time, as always, to listen to us here on Smart Businesses Do This. Now, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about how to build a smart business, then the absolute best place to start is with my Smart Blueprint ebook. Over 10,000 people have already gone through the book, and it's one of the most comprehensive resources on strategically building and growing your business that you can find anywhere for free. Just visit the smartblueprint.com forward slash ebook to grab a free copy. And I'll see you on the next episode of Smart Businesses Do This.